Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. Uh, I'm Mark O'Krand, and uh, what I did, it sort of brought me here, I guess, is develop the Klingon language for Star Trek and some other languages as well. So you are a linguist, uh, you are a linguist by training. What drew you to linguistics? Well, when I was in college, when I entered college, at that time, I'd never heard of linguistics. I mean, I've heard the word, but I didn't know what it meant, really. But the college I went to was brand new when I was there. And there was a class that all the freshmen had to take that I think the faculty kind of threw together the weekend before the students showed up or something like that. (laughs) And the name of the class was Language, Culture, and Society, or Language, Society, and Culture, whichever way it went. And uh, what it turned out to be was an introduction to the faculty and an introduction to the students. It's not to the students, to the disciplines. So that one week it'd be lectures by a historian and one week by a literature professor and one week by a psychologist and one week by a philosopher and all that stuff. And the the, the common thread was language through all these things. But it was different approaches, different ways of looking at it. Uh, which was great because as freshmen, we didn't know what we were doing and we didn't know what we wanted to do. So you know, learning about the different disciplines was great and the college was very small. So the introduction of the faculty was great too because then you knew who you were seeing wandering around. Anyway, there was one linguist, one linguistics professor on, on staff at the time and he was sort of in charge, which meant he did the first week and the last week and all the other people did everything in between. And the way he heard of before and that struck me as pretty interesting. So when that course was over, I took Linguistics 1, or whatever it's called. Uh, and that was good. That was good. Uh, then I took Linguistics 2, or whatever that was called. And then summer came. When I came back from summer, they'd already revamped the whole program. Even though the college was only one year old, they revamped the whole program already. And the equivalent to Linguistics 3 that I should have taken next no longer existed because they combined it with linguistics too, and I already took that course. So uh, what they did was set up an independent study. It was just me and the professor, which as a a sophomore is a very unusual sort of thing. Uh, And in addition to doing, you know, textbook work and, and, and made up exercises and things like that, he had me work with real language data, you know, doing things that no one had ever done before. Uh, and then I was hooked. And I said, all right, this was, this was really fun. The, 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 what I was doing was interesting, doing it for sort of a purpose as opposed to just textbooks exercise, uh, textbook exercises was fun. And, and that's how I got into it. But as I say, you know, walking into college the very first day, I didn't know what this was all about. I didn't know what it was. What does one do with language data? <laughs> what a linguist does is not necessarily uh, learn how to speak another language or a bunch of other languages. They may, and that's very useful and important, you know, depending on what you're studying and so on. But what a linguist does is look at language to see how language in general works. Uh, how, how, how do sounds work in, in a language? What kind of system is there of the sounds? It's not random. How do you make a word? How do you put words? How do you organize words into a sentence? Things like that. 
uh, again, not not what does French do for the sake of learning, different from Arabic. What 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 are they up to? Or looking at language historically, how did a language change over time? How are languages related to each other, and things like that? So again, it's 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 looking at language. Uh, and trying to figure out how it works now and how it how it came to be and things like that is not necessarily having a conversation, which is an important thing to do. I don't I don't mean to dismiss it at all, but it's a different thing. You worked on the first closed captioning system for hearing impaired television viewers, and you were involved with the National Captioning Institute until you retired. So how did you get involved with closed captioning? The very, very short answer is I needed a job. The slightly longer answer uh, is I was, I was, uh, I, I, well, a long time ago, I taught linguistics uh, at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And it was a great job, it's a great place, but it was a temporary job, which meant at the end of each year, they'd say one of two things is going to happen. Either they'll say, don't come back, and that probably wouldn't be because of me. It probably would be because the money shifted to some other discipline or dried up altogether or something or other. Or they'd say, come back, come back, come back, come back. Uh, and the way it worked then, and I've been away from, from you know, real academia for so long, now, I don't know how it works anymore. But the way it worked then is after seven years, they either had to offer you tenure or kick you out. And you couldn't get tenure if you had a temporary job because you couldn't be permanent and temporary at the same time. So a lot of people would lose their jobs after seven years unless, the, unless over that time of you know, a permanent job or, or a job with the potential for tenure happened to open up. But you couldn't count on that. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. So I got to thinking what I should do is go off somewhere and do some research and present papers potential for tenure. So I applied for and got uh, a postdoc at the Smithsonian in Washington and moved to Washington for what I thought would be one year, because that's how long the program was. Uh, and during that time, I would do research and write papers and give talks and look for a job. And I did all those things, but there was no jobs <laughs> or very, very few jobs. Uh, and the field of linguistics is so small. Everybody knew what was going on with the jobs. Everyone knew who was likely to get them and all that kind of stuff. And I happened to be in the midst of all this, I happened to be at a party in Washington, which sounds like a very, you know, Washington DC sort of thing to do, but it was just a regular old party in Washington. It was talking to someone who worked for what was then called the Department of Health, Education and Welfare. And he worked in whichever part of that dealt with the education of deaf people. We're talking about, and he said, there's this new technology being developed it's going to help deaf people watch television and they need a linguist. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, the name of this technology is closed captioning. I had no idea what that was. It wasn't on the air yet. And he explained what it was and it's subtitles uh, on TV for, for people who can't hear the, can't hear the TV audio or have trouble hearing the TV audio. Uh, and I said, why do they need a linguist? I can see, how they would need somebody, you know, who can spell properly and knows how to punctuate and things like that. But why a linguist, someone who studies language and like how language systems work. 
and at the time, this is this is fortunately no longer true. This is this is forty years ago or something. Um, well, every every state has a, a state sponsored alcohol and at the time, and it goes from kindergarten all the way through high school. And, and at the time, the average graduate from one of these schools, average high school graduate, was reading at a fourth grade reading level. But it's definitely a commentary about the education. And as I say, it's changed. Um, but because of that, uh, reading subtitles on TV would pose some difficulties if they were verbatim and went by very, very fast. Because unlike a newspaper or a book where, you know, you read a sentence, you go, huh, and read it again. On the, uh, the, with the subtitle, it comes on, it's there for a few seconds, and it's gone. So if you don't get it, you're stuck. You know, that, that's the end of that. So the, 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 theory, <clears throat> the theory at the time, and it wasn't, it wasn't invented just for closed caption, because there were already captioned films uh, that, were, that were produced for, for people who are deaf, was to simplify the grammar, simplify the vocabulary, okay? control how fast the, you know, everything appeared. And he said they need a linguist who can help them with that, because a linguist understands in December senses and so on. And I said, well, it's language connected, sort of. And before I got into, into linguistics, before I went to college, I worked in radio professionally for, for, I don't know, six years or something like that. So it's broadcasting, sort of. And I need a job, definitely. So I applied and got it and stayed there for 34 years. You know. uh, over time, the, the whole philosophy about captioning has changed. So now this whole editing and simplifying the stuff is not is not the case anymore. Now the, the philosophy now is is very close to verbatim, subject to technical restrictions because the the, the TVs can only spit out the captions so fast. So there's there's technical technical issues, but there's not philosophical issues anymore, except for kids shows. Uh, so yeah, you were there at the very beginning and helped then shape how closed captioning evolved. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, we, we sort of invented, I didn't have anything to do with the technology, but we invented the, the, the procedures and the systems and, and, and the approaches and, you know, had endless discussions about where you put a comma and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, at the time, when I first started, um, there was hardly any, any closed captioned programming on the air. In fact, when I first started, I think there was three hours a week or something like that. That's obviously changed because now it's everywhere all the time and so on. But all we could do at the very, very beginning was shows that were on tape or on film because uh, we could get a copy of the, of the program in ahead of time and look at it and figure out what the caption should be and send it back to the network before it aired and, and things like that. Uh, but we couldn't do anything live. Did you ever get a... Uh a preview of a show you were really interested in, what was going to happen? You saw it first because you did the closed captioning? Beginning, not so much because there were so few shows. The very first shows we did weren't necessarily the ones I would have picked to watch on TV. That's not, nothing bad about it. It was just I probably wouldn't, wouldn't have picked those. Uh, but later on, we got uh, the, the networks were very 
uh, fussy about letting the information out, and, and, and we had to sign all kinds of non-disclosure releases and things like that for various shows. Uh, one of the, the one of the best ones, if that's the right word, was Seinfeld. Uh, not so much Seinfeld that was going along, but the finale of Seinfeld was a big secret because it was going to be a big deal on TV. So the, I, I personally didn't work on, on that, but, but the people who did had to sign something and could not sign until it aired. I remember. And another one we had to, had to keep closed-mouthed about, which I thought was interesting and at first didn't understand it, was America's Most Wanted. We got to see the show before it aired, right? Mm -hmm. So we knew who was out there at large that the, you know, that the FBI was looking for, you know, b before it was on TV. Not much before, you know, just a day or two, but even so. And we were not allowed to talk about that show at all until after it aired. And I'm thinking when I first, you know, signed the agreement about that, I'm thinking, I wonder why that is, because if I see the show ahead of time and then I'm walking down the street and see the guy who they're looking for, I should call it in and that would be helpful to know all this ahead of time. But the reason, you know, whoever they're profiling, they didn't want them to know they're being profiled because then they could you know, move or something. Or, uh, so it had to be a, a deep secret until it aired. Yeah, so there's a number, a number of shows like that. And we worked on Star Trek too. Was that before or after you? Oh, that was that was all after. We didn't work on the original Star Trek, obviously, because that was that was before all of this was invented. But there was Next Generation, mm -hmm. uh, and going forward. Um, but we would get the show, and Star Trek was was one of them. Uh, Northern Exposure was another one. Actually, there was lots of shows uh, where we would get it in before it was quite finished, because they, when they were working on these shows. Forget captioning, just putting the show together. It was right up to the last minute sometimes, right? They wouldn't get it to the, to the network until <laughs> it felt like, you know, too late. And they were making changes up to the last minute. So since it took us a certain amount of time to do the captioning, we'd have to, uh, they would send us a version of the show that wasn't quite finished yet. So every once in a while, the captions on the audio wouldn't match when it aired on TV because they made a change to the audio. It didn't tell us uh, after, you know, after the captioning had been done. And it, most of the time that was trivial. But every once in a while is you'd see captions for a voiceover, but you wouldn't hear it because it wasn't there. They, or they would change a, a, a phrase here and there. And if you were a, for Star Trek in particular, right? If you were a big fan of Star Trek and into all the details and stuff like that, what you were seeing and, uh, you know, reading one thing and hearing something else, you had some insight into the writing process, which was fascinating to see what kinds of thinking the, the, the writers or the director or the producer or something were, were they were concerned about <laughs> that, that otherwise you wouldn't know. So it was, it was fun to watch those shows from that point of view. That's fascinating. Now, the closed captioning connection is how you got connected with the Star Trek linguistics, right? Tell that story. Uh, after a couple of years, we were finally able to caption a show that was live, like news or sports, uh, and, which we couldn't do at the beginning. And we practiced with the technology. Uh, 
but wanted to not go on the air with it until we were pretty comfortable that, that it was good enough. And we decided that it was and figured that the first show that we did that we announced ahead of time, we did shows on the air, you know, captioned live, but didn't tell anyone. If you happen to turn your TV on, you might see it, but it wasn't announced. But when we were ready to announce, we said the first show we should do should be a program with high publicity value and low probability of error, just in case this wasn't as good as we thought it was. So we picked the Oscars, the Academy Awards in 1982, and the publicity value said on the show, this program is being closed captioned for the first time live, da 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 So that was really cool. Mm -hmm. And the low probability of error is, you know, big secret here, the Oscars are scripted. They're legit. I mean, they don't know who's going to win. But everything up to and the Oscar goes to is scripted. And then they say the name of the winner and the winner gives their speech. That's all that's all real. That's all legit. Mm -hmm. But when they come out and say the job of the cinematographer is to make the actors look good, you know, all those little speeches and things, that's all scripted. So we could get the script ahead of time uh, for the whole show and enter all of all the actors saying their lives, we would just go along with them like a teleprompter to the next line, next line, next line. And as long as they didn't blow the line, it, it would match up. And then when we got to the part that was not scripted and the Oscar goes to, you know, so-and-so, and I'd like to thank my mother and father and acting coach, that we would do really, really live. And so our thinking was if the really, really live stuff wasn't as good as we'd hoped, as we thought it was, at least the rest of the show would be really, really good. And ABC was the network. They thought that was a good idea. The Academy, you know, they thought it was a good idea. And they said, and we'll give you a script, but after we give it to you, it'll change. Every day there's changes and it gets closer and closer to airtime. There's more and more changes. So somebody has to keep track to make sure you've got the latest version in, in your computer. And for reasons that I don't understand but don't regret, I was given that job to keep track of it. So uh, we were we were based uh, in in Washington D.C., actually just outside of Virginia, uh, and so the broadcast, the captioning was going to come from there. But the Oscars were in L.A., so they flew me out to L.A. and I arrived on Monday. I called up whoever I'm supposed to call. And they said, great, you know, welcome to LA. We'll have a script for you on Wednesday or Thursday. So I had three days basically with nothing to do, which was fine with me. Sure. Because I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, so I had, I had family and friends there. But I hadn't, other, I mean, my family knew I was there, but I hadn't called any of my friends because I didn't want to say, this is, this is before email and cell phones and everything else, right? I didn't want to call up my friend and say, hi, I'm in town and I have absolutely no time to see you. You know, it seemed kind of silly. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden I did have time. So I got on the phone and was calling some friends. Hey, I'm here. Let's have dinner or whatever. And one of my friends said, where are you? Where, where are you calling me from? So I said where I was. And she said, oh, that's like a mile from here. Why don't you come by for lunch? Okay. Well, here where she was is Paramount Pictures. She worked uh, for Harve Bennett. She was the, the, the executive assistant or something like that to Harve Bennett, who was the executive producer of Star Trek II, Ratha Khan, mm -hmm. uh, which was in post-production 
and I knew Harv as well from a, from a, another context. Um, but I didn't happen to call him. So we were having lunch, and uh, during lunch, the topic of linguistics came up somehow or other. And the uh, woman who I had not met ahead of time said, "That's really interesting." And I said, "Why? <laughs> that's that's odd." Well, there's a there's a scene in the film where Mr. Spock and a new Vulcan character, a female character, have a little conversation. And when they filmed the scene, they were speaking English to each other because that's what the script said to do. But now that they're in post-production, for a number of reasons, which are actually interesting and we can get to if, if you want later on, um, everyone's decided that they should be speaking Vulcan to each other. So we got the idea of calling the linguistics department at UCLA and hiring a linguist to come over and watch the scene and look at their lips and basically make up gobbledygook that sounds different, but looks like, you know, looks like what they're, what they're saying. So it's a lip syncing sort of thing. And I said, that's really clever. That, that's very smart. And hiring a linguist makes sense because linguists understand what you do with your mouth to make noises of various kinds. And they know what things would look like other things and so on. What a good idea. And this is Star Trek II. That's yeah, this 40 years ago, I guess, right? It's, it's 82. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, that's too long ago. I don't remember what the headache was all about. <laughs> Except I do remember it was a boring headache, it, meaning it was they were playing telephone tag or schedules weren't working. or so, And again, this is pre-cell phone and all this stuff. Right, right. She said, I don't know what we're going to do because uh, we're going to have to, we, we need to take care of this right away. And I said, what do you mean right away? It's got to be done by the end of this week, which is exactly how long I was in time for the Oscars. So I said, I can do that. You know, as you were telling me about it, I was thinking in my head how I would go about doing it if it were me. I'm not thinking that it would be me, but you know, if I were the one to do it. And my friend said, yeah, he could associate producer happened to walk by with his lunch. And they turned to him and said, we just solved the Vulcan problem. And he said, what are you talking about? So she told him and he said, come see me after lunch. And that's how that happened. You know, now, the fact that I knew Harv Bennett, the, the executive producer, is not irrelevant to the story because it was ultimately his decision to hire me. So he, he wasn't hiring someone who just showed up off the street that he didn't know. Right. right. So there was there was some some background and connection there, but I didn't go there to get a job. I went there to eat a sandwich, you know. Uh, but that's not what ended up happening. Well, you probably also got a sandwich. I did get a sandwich. I, I, I did. I did. Yeah. So they they showed me the the scene. It's Mr. Spock. So they said so they showed they showed me the scene uh, on on film. <laughs> this is all on film, no video. You know, with the old moviola, if you know what that is. Right. Anyway, is Mr. Spock kind uh, of a character? called Savik, you know, who was played by a woman who I'd never heard of. It turned out it was Kirstie Alley, but no one knew who she was at that time. Their lips, all that stuff. And then went back home where I was staying and made up gibberish. And the next day went in to coach Kirstie Alley on her lines. Leonard Nemo was going to do his on another day. They didn't do it at the same time. And on the way in, the, the associate producer says to me, he says, you know, in Star Trek, the motion picture, they speak Vulcan. I said, yeah, there's a scene, a scene where they do that. He says, your Vulcan should sound like that. 
I'm thinking, why didn't we think of this yesterday <laughs> before I, I figured all this out? He says, so let's go look at that. Let's go look at that move. Opening scene is Klingons, but the next scene is, is, is on the Vulcan, and they're speaking Vulcan. Uh, and I'm thinking, I can't redo everything that I just did because it matches with the lips. So I'm listening for sounds uh, that I can kind of sprinkle in there that won't affect lip movement, that are, that are made in the back of your throat or mm -hmm. something that you can't see. And what I heard from time to time in this Vulcan was the kinds of sounds. So I put a few of those into, into the Vulcan that I did that hadn't been there before. And then we go off and I meet Kirstie Alley and we're practicing the lines. Uh, and the, the director of the film was Nick Meyer, right? Who did Star Trek II and Star Trek VI as director. Um, pulls, the, pulls the producer, associate producer aside and says, I don't know, because you could hear the room wasn't very big. So I could hear him on the other side of the room. He says, I don't know if this Vulcan is going to work. And the producer said, why? Why? What's the matter with it? And what he's hearing is the stuff that I'd sprinkled in there to make it sound like the, like the motion picture. And the associate producer said, let's just try it. You know, if it doesn't work, we'll do something else. Let's just try it. And Nick said, okay. So... Kirsty recorded her lines and they played it back. And because Nimoy wasn't there, uh, she said a line in Vulcan and Spock responded in English. And she said a line in Vulcan and Spock responded in English. And Nick Meyer laughed and he says, we'll keep it. This is great. We'll keep it. We'll keep it. So I was very relieved. Um, and a couple of days later, I went in there and sort of did the same procedure with Leonard Nimoy. Uh, time and he got there on time and whoever brings the donuts got there on time because I was in a room with you know, Mr. Spock and a bunch of donuts and I figured I, I know who he is but he doesn't know who I am so I introduced myself to him he said oh yes they told me we were going to do this show me what I've got to do so I gave him the, the uh, transcription you know because I wrote it out and he tried to pronounce it and said now if, if I change this to this Will that still work in terms of lip movement? I said, yeah, that'll be fine. Okay, let's make that change. That'll be easier to say. If I change this to this, will that work? No. All right, we'll leave that alone. And so on. So we changed it a little bit. And again, it didn't matter because it's all gibberish. It doesn't, doesn't mean a thing. Um, mm -hmm. Then you know, we practiced a few times, recorded, recorded his lines. And at that point, I had Oscar things to do. So it was in the morning we did this. So I left to go to go to the Oscars, and I'm driving down probably the Hollywood freeway, uh, thinking, you know, I just taught Mr. Spock how to speak Vulcan, you know. This was great <laughs> from, a, from a Star Trek point of view, from a linguistics point of view. Utterly, I'm utterly convinced that this is cool, but also this is never happening again. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll be a footnote in a trivia book sometime, but other than that, you know, that, that's the end of it. Uh, that turned out <laughs> not to be the case, obviously, because about a, year, about a year and a half later, you know, Harv Bennett called and said, well, that movie did well, so we're making another Star Trek movie. The villains are going to be the Klingons. He says, I think the Klingons should have their own language. You did Vulcan. Do you want to do Klingon? And that's how I got to do Klingon. So um, how was the process of doing Klingon different than the process of doing Vulcan? It was 
totally different. Totally different, because Klingon, I mean, Harv and I talked about this a lot ahead of time now. We wanted Klingon to sound like a real language and figure that in order to make it sound like a real language, it had to be a real language. So I was very concerned about how does the grammar work? What, is this, what, are the, what are the sounds, but also how does the whole sound system work? Um, uh, and, and all these things. There was also some history to Klingon and, and, and to Vulcan too. Um, and the history to Klingon was in Star Trek, the motion picture at the very, very beginning, they speak Klingon, right? The opening scene is these three Klingon ships go by and we see inside one of them, right? And that's the beginning of the Klingon language that, that predates me. Um, it turns out that that Klingon, well, let me, let me take us do a, a, a sidebar first and talk about Vulcan for a second, but I'll come back to the Klingon because I talked earlier yep, about yep. the Vulcan in Star Trek. But I found out later that the Vulcan in Star Trek, the motion picture was the same technique as the Vulcan in Star Trek two. In other words, in that scene, it's, it's Mr. Spock is being uh, inducted if that's the right word, and uh, he's undergoing a, a, a ritual to accept something called kolinar, right, which is the abandonment of, or, or, or giving over to pure logic, abandoning, abandoning emotions and all that stuff. And there's a woman conducting the ceremony or the procedure, uh, and, and she's got a helper, this other guy is there standing off to the side. And when they recorded the scene, when they filmed the scene, this was all in English. Again, the script was all in English, but when they were reviewing it and so on, they decided, you know what? Uh, it, it shouldn't be speaking English. This is a Vulcan ceremony on the Vulcan planet and nobody's there except Vulcans. It should be in the Vulcan language. So they hired a guy from UCLA. I don't know if it was the same one that they talked to for Star Trek Two time, because I have no idea who that was. They, got a hold of a guy from UCLA named Harmut Scharf, who was not in the linguistics department. He was in, I don't know what the department was, but he dealt with, with uh, South Asian languages, you know, India, India, Indian languages and, and Sanskrit mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, and he did the same thing. He uh, made up gobbledygook that matched the lips. And when they were off camera, of course, he could, he didn't have to worry about the lips. Uh, and made up made up all that stuff and then they hired a woman who was not the woman you see but a, a different a different actor and the guy that you see it's not his voice either i believe that's actually sharp's voice um saying his one line or something of, of, of lip sync vulcan so that was the history of that so anyway then it's time to do klingon for, for the motion picture even though the even though the scene was uh the first scene in, in the film, the, the, the filming of it was, was later on. Um, and they hired Scharf again to uh, make up Klingon because he was their linguist guy, I guess. And he made up whatever he made up, but they didn't like it for some reason or other. Uh, what, what I heard is they, they thought it sounded a little bit too Sanskrit or, or Indian, uh, Indian language like Hindi or something and German. He was a, a German guy, Scharf. Um, so I don't know if they mm -hmm. threw everything he did out, but they, they threw it out or they substantially revised it. And the substantial revisers or the, or, or the new creators, if you will, were two guys, 
uh, it was John Poville, who was one of the producers. I don't know what his title was, associate producer or something, assistant producer. And Jimmy mm-hmm. Dillon, James Dillon, right? He played Scotty. And the two of them came up with the, the, the Klingon that you hear in Star Trek, the motion picture. And they paid a lot of attention to what it should sound like. They wanted it to sound weird and otherworldly and, and all these things, uh, but didn't like that. So when Star Trek Three comes around, we're going to do Klingon for that. I went back to the motion picture, and you know anything that was spoken in the motion picture is legitimate Klingon. So all the sounds that are in the motion picture could be sounds in the language that I was going to make up, uh, and the syllable structure. So I'm like the basic syllable structure of Klingon comes from the motion picture, but from what, from what John and Jimmy did. Um, but I imposed structure on it, imposed vocabulary on it. So, for example, there's there's a phrase in the motion picture, you know, "chayrush." He says, "So is that one word or two words or three words?" I don't know. Nobody knows, you know. So I just decided, well, "cha" is one word and "yerush" is another word, for no reason, just because you got to get going somehow. And did that with with the stuff in the motion picture, and then and then built built on that and and to pay attention to the sound system. I had sort of two things, well, three things in mind. One was it is had to sound like nothing else. Uh, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't sound like English um, or French or whatever. One was this was an alien language, supposed to be an alien language. So what does that mean? I'm going to say it. Right, the actor was really going to say this stuff, so I couldn't say, well, we'll play tapes backwards or do something electronic or something like that. I said, so all, all the sounds that I pick have to be sounds from, from human languages, otherwise you can't do it. But, you know, human languages tend to follow certain rules and patterns. <clears throat> they're very, they're very uh, systemic um, for Klingon. So there's no sound in Klingon that you can't find in some human language or other. But the collection of sounds is unique to Klingon. They, sh- they don't belong together in the same language from the way human languages work. They violate those kinds of rules. Uh, and that was, that was to make it alien. And also that made it be, you know, sound like nothing else. But the other thing I had to worry about is the actors really had to be able to say it. So I couldn't come up with stuff they couldn't, couldn't pronounce. Uh, and they had to be able to learn it, and, you know, memorize it to say the lines. So I'd say that, that I don't know, a half or maybe two thirds of the sounds in Klingon are perfectly good English sounds, and the rest of them are these kind of oddball things. Uh, and all of that was done intentionally because of because of movie making, not for language creation reasons, but for movie making reasons. You know, for what, what, what the task was all about. And then similar considerations uh, of, uh, for the grammar. The vocabulary was whatever the the whatever the movie called for it, right? I went through the script and made up all the words that were needed to say all the lines that were supposed to be spoken in Klingon. I also made up, made up Klingon uh, versions of all the lines that were, according to the script, supposed to be spoken by Klingons when they spoke English. Not when they spoke English to Captain Kirk, but when they spoke English to each other. Just in case while we were filming, someone would say, hey, why is that Klingon talking English to the other Klingon? He should be talking Klingon. I could say, here, say this as opposed to saying, oh, you know, let me go think about that. I'll come back in a little while. But that wouldn't work from a movie-making point of view. Uh, so I made up all the lines where Klingons were speaking English uh, to other Klingons. They used but zero But even though they those. didn't use those lines, 
that probably gave you more vocabulary to have thought about and to have built into the language from the beginning. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, it was, as I say, it was, it was important to do. And years, well, actually, not years later, it was while we were filming. Uh, I, was, I was on set every time they spoke Klingon, I was, and noticed that the, the, the crew, meaning the filmmaking crew, not so much the Enterprise crew, although them too, um, were very interested in the language. And they'd come up to me, oh, you're the language guy. Yeah, say something in Klingon. I said, what do you want me to say? They'd say, say hi, how are you? I said, Klingon would never say that. And then, ha, ha, ha. Anyway, and so on. But I realized movie making crew <laughs> are kind of jaded. I don't mean that in a bad way, but they've seen everything. They've seen all the actors. They've seen all the movies. They know what's going on. It's just routine for them. But this language was new and interesting. So I said, if these guys find it interesting, at the time, there was a lot of connection with called Star Trek fans. So I proposed the idea of writing a book that explains how the language works. And blah, 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 long story. Eventually, the, the, the powers that be said, yes, do that. And when I sat down to write the book, which was, which was after the filming was all over, uh, look, everything that I made up for the movie, it would have been a really skinny book because there wasn't that much really. So I had to flesh it out. So I fleshed out the grammar and I made up a lot of new words that ended up in, in the book that, that were, not in the, were not in the movie. And that was hard, actually. Uh, making up the grammar, the additional grammar was not all that hard because in making up the uh, initial grammar, I built a framework you know, for, for how things work. Even if I didn't make all the details, I kind of knew where- Talk a little bit in. about the thought process behind creating a grammar for a language. Yeah, uh, for this language in particular, well, let's talk a little more generally. Every, every language has a grammar. By grammar, I don't mean where you put a period or where do you, where do you capitalize a word. How do you know what order to put words in and, and things like that. So knowing as a linguist, I know what kinds of systems are out there, what kinds of things various languages do. And some languages do things that other languages don't do. And some languages or languages do things in different ways and so on. So I had some tools to, or, or some models to draw from. Uh, for, for Klingon in particular, because as I said earlier, it was supposed to be an alien language, a non-human language, uh, but, but still be, I just said I had to make grammar strange, but not impossible. Uh, so again, as, as the, in the same way that, that sounds tend to be patterned in a language and, and, and follow certain, certain uh, patterns and, and tendencies. It's the same thing with grammar. There's certain, certain elements of grammar that are found to tend to be found together in the same language and certain elements that tend not to be together in the same language. So the same shouldn't be necessarily in the same language. They might be, but it would be unusual to find them together in the same language. And I used a, a unusual characteristics. Uh, for example, one of the things about grammar is is syntax. You know what what how, how to build a sentence. What what order do you put the words in? And and to not not oversimplify too much, um, and accept you know acknowledging it's much more complex than this. Anyway, 
there's sort of three basic elements in a sentence, which is the subject and the object and the verb, the, the, the doer of the action, the action itself, and the recipient of the action. So in English, you know, a good example is dogs bite people. Dogs is the subject, the dogs do the action, bite is the verb, is what the action is. Uh, if you're going to have those three things, they have to come in some order or other. In English, it happens to be in, in that order. The subject comes first, then the verb, and then the object. There's all kinds of exceptions and blah, 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 but basically. But mathematically, there's six possibilities. It could be subject, object, verb, verb, object, subject, subject, verb, object, and so on. There's six possibilities. And if you look at all the languages in the world, you'll find representatives for all six as their basic, normal, everyday kind of, kind of order. But some of them are a whole lot more common than others. So the one where the subject comes first, like English, uh, is among the very most verb. That order is very, very common. The least common are the ones where the object comes first. So object, verb, subject, or object, subject, verb, those are extremely uncommon, not unheard of, but extremely, extremely rare. There's a handful of languages that do that. I said, I'm going to pick one of those for Klingon. Not, and the, and the one I picked was subject and then verb and then object, so it's backwards from English. But I didn't pick it because it's backwards from English. I picked it because it's represented by the fewest languages in the world. Right? So it's the least human from, from that weird point of view, which is not to you know, cast aspersions at the people whose languages really do that. Uh, but it's the least, the least common. So, you know, so thinking about the grammar, uh, I tried to do too. But still, I had to, I had to have rules because in Klingon, if you're going to say dogs bite people, you have to have a word for dogs, a word for people, and a word for bite. They have to come in some order or other. I hope you are enjoying listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. It goes on for another 30 minutes, so I decided to make this our first two-part episode of the Starbase Indie Podcast. Check back to find the rest next week. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.